Welcome to Fit Body Happy Joints episode 100. My name is Shannon. I'm so pumped to get to 100 episodes. I mean, we've come a long way. Starting this podcast was something I had a ton of resistance about. I thought no one was going to listen. I thought it would be just a lot of work for no payoff, but I am so, so glad I did this. Creating this podcast, writing the podcast, recording, hearing your feedback has been one of my favorite parts of my job. And I've said this before, but I feel like this little corner of the internet with the Fit Body Happy Joints community is one of my favorite places aside from the Evo membership. I just feel like I can really get into some topics that have just blown my own mind over the last few years, last decade. And I'm so grateful that you all have listened because without listeners, we wouldn't continue to put out new content. So thank you so much for being here and to celebrate I wanted to put some of the best of episodes together into different podcasts. And what I started doing is I thought I was going to do this in one episode, like put all of my favorite episodes into one. And it was way too long. (laughs) And I was like, uh, it's so hard to like summarize things without explaining things. And one of my frustrations, I think in a lot of educational content is they either give the application and they don't tell you why that application is important or they tell you the science and the why, but they don't give you the application. So my goal of this podcast is to help you understand the recommendations and how to apply things into your fitness routine, but also understand why. Cause that to me is the magic where you're like, okay, now I get it. So it's easier for me to stick to if I understand the reasoning. So that's my goal of this podcast. So I just realized it's really hard for me to summarize these things without talking about the why. So what I plan to do is summarize some of the best episodes on into different buckets. I think I kind of have some main themes or topics that I usually discuss. So over the next several weeks, I'll have different topics and I will summarize different episodes within each topic. So we'll have one on cardio. We'll have one on optimizing your routine and body composition. We'll have one on myths and mistakes. We'll have one about the nervous system. We'll have one on metabolism and energy expenditure. We'll have one on Pilates and stretching And then this one, which is going to be all about improving the efficiency of your workouts and feeling better. So for this episode, I selected six different episodes over the last year and a half, over the last 100 episodes. And luckily when I do my podcast, I write podcast notes. So I was able to go back to my podcast notes and kind of um, trim out anything that was unnecessary, summarize the podcast, and then I created new podcast notes for this episode. So we'll chat about the main takeaways and the learnings of the six different episodes that I broke down today. I'm going to talk about a lot about hypertrophy in this episode, but I'm not going to talk about why I recommend a hypertrophy routine. I'm planning to do a separate episode about why I recommend hypertrophy or building muscle. So without further ado, let's get into this. First, we're going to talk about episode number seven, how to know if your workouts are productive or just hard. We want our workouts to be the most bang for your buck. We want to know that our time and energy are well spent. We want to know that the work we're putting in is moving us towards a goal and not just like arbitrarily burning energy without much payoff. If you aren't training for some kind of sport, like a marathon or you're competing in some sport and your goal is just to be healthy and maybe improve body composition and feel better, 
my recommendation is to focus on hypertrophy or muscle growth over doing a lot of high intensity exercise. And then you sprinkle in the hit and the lower intensity cardio. However, the fitness routine has led people to believe that a hard workout is necessary to drive results and that hard workouts need to look a certain way. Your workout needs to be super sweaty. Your heart rate needs to be high the whole time. You need to burn a lot of calories. You need to feel like you basically want to die. Otherwise your workout is not effective. And this was one of this episode was one of the first times I really talked about this topic and I talked about it a lot ever since, but I think it's really interesting to kind of go back and see my initial thoughts on this. So let's use an example of, of this in practice. Let's say you go to a boot camp class and in that class you're doing circuits with a lot going on. Like there's a lot of combination moves. So picture like burpees to overhead presses, you're jumping over benches, you're doing squats and bicep curls all in one your heart is really pumping. That class feels really hard. In other words, you have to expend a lot of energy to keep your body moving. There's a lot of muscles involved. There's a lot of movements. There's a lot of thrown weights around. You feel fatigued and sweaty and maybe like you burned a lot of calories. And at the end of that workout, you're like, I'm exhausted. That was hard because it was hard. It must have done something good for my body, but hard and productive are not always the same thing. We don't want to choose an exercise just because it's hard. We want to choose an exercise because it aligns with our goals and will lead to the desired changes with the least amount of wasted energy or demand or damage rather to our body and to our system. So here's an example. If you're standing on one leg and you're doing a bicep curl and a pistol squat at the same time, that exercise feels really hard. But is that the best use of your energy? Probably not, right? There's too much going on. You can't focus on any one given thing. It might feel really hard and difficult to coordinate, but it's not necessarily hard in the right ways. So we we don't want to choose an exercise just because it's hard. When hypertrophy or muscle growth is your goal, you want to specifically load the muscle you are challenging and continuously load that muscle using a simple exercise until it gets close to failure. But If you're jumping around and doing really complicated moves, that workout may feel hard, but it may not be loading any given muscle group specifically enough to induce a substantial change to the muscle. Hypertrophy-based workouts might not feel super hard overall. Like They might not make you feel like you got hit by a truck. They may not feel the hardest in the sense that your whole system is exhausted, called, called systemic fatigue, your whole system. The muscle may feel tired, but your system may not necessarily feel overly depleted. People write off this type of workout because it didn't feel quote unquote hard enough, or it didn't burn as many calories due to the conditioning that our workouts have to be super sweaty. They have to feel like you basically want to throw up or else you're not going to do anything for your body. No pain, no gain, right? But hypertrophy training does not need to be systemically fatiguing in order to be effective. In fact, Just doing a workout because it's hard instead of specifically loading your muscles may be counterproductive for muscle growth. If we are systemically exhausted from lots of fluff and movement and and combination moves and trying to coordinate the different things and throwing weights around, you're using your energy towards exercises that are systemically fatiguing or are using your energy towards maybe improving your cardiovascular health and getting your heart rate up, but not specific enough to induce hypertrophy hypertrophy to the muscle and probably depleting your system for not a huge payoff. 
Now, sometimes those type of workouts are really fun and challenging your system that way can be really fun. I'm not saying don't ever do it, but I think that choosing a workout or even writing off a workout because it doesn't make you feel like you did enough because it wasn't quote unquote hard enough is not my recommendation. So how do you know if your workout was productive or if it was just hard for not a good use of your energy? A productive workout will feel very specific. You'll be like, okay, I know exactly which muscle groups I worked and they are tired. They are cooked as we call it in class. And then a hard workout that was just kind of systemically fatiguing might make you feel really tired, but you might leave the workout not really knowing which muscle groups got targeted or worked. That type of workout that's just more systemically fatiguing might benefit you cardiovascularly, but it isn't necessarily the best use of your energy for muscle growth or hypertrophy or like physically changing the shape of your body. I hear many of you saying, well, maybe not if you're podcast listeners, but many of you might be saying, well, that type of workout burns more calories. So isn't that going to expedite weight loss? And this is something that I will get into in subsequent episodes, but this is not my recommendation either. Remember that burning calories isn't necessarily what's going to expedite your weight loss. It's much more about nutrition. Okay. That is episode number seven in a nutshell. Next is episode number nine, how to cut your workout time in half, but double your results. This is one of my favorite episodes. The amount of time that you're spending working out actually has very little to do with the results that you'll see. I think a lot of people, again, are conditioned that need to get that hour in of movement what you're doing within your workout is so much more important than the actual length of your workout. If you're selecting movements that are effective, your workouts do not need to be super long, like really longer than like 45 minutes to an hour. And a lot of times your workout can be effective in 30 minutes or sometimes even less. The reason people aren't seeing results, even though they're working out hard for long periods of time is because they might be overloading joints and underloading muscles. They're choosing exercises that are maybe only partway effective for creating change in their muscles, which means they have to spend a lot longer doing more exercises to make up for the half stimulus from poor exercise selection. Going back to those combination moves, which we're going to talk about in more detail here in a moment. This of course takes more time. It takes more energy. It also adds unnecessary wear and tear on your body. The result from this type of training is that your body might not feel so great and you spend a lot of time during your week at the gym and you end up kind of getting so-so results. This type of training can kind of lead to an overdose, so to speak, of exercise that happens when people work out for too long and choose exercises that are stressing their joints for relatively low muscular reward. When it comes to exercise, my philosophy is that you want to choose enough dosage for your body that will elicit positive change and not overdose it to the point where you get into the red and you see negative change. So here are my recommendations for getting better results with shorter workouts. First is to use mechanics to your advantage. Just because you can push a lot of weight in a certain exercise, that doesn't necessarily mean it's more effective to the targeted muscle. Choosing a body weight exercise can sometimes be more effective at targeting a muscle group than choosing another exercise that doesn't use ideal levers. So therefore you have to use heavier weight to get the same amount of load to the muscle. So in other words, the longer the lever, the further away the resistance is from the moving joint, the more work to the muscle. So if you choose an exercise with an effective lever, a nice long lever, you can actually use less weight to get a lot of work to the muscle. So 
let's use an analogy. Let's say you're holding an egg with a spoon. I don't know why I thought of this analogy when I wrote this, but you, when you hold a spoon and you've got an egg on the end, your hand and your wrist have to work a lot harder when you're holding at the end of the spoon. Whereas it gets easier if you're holding closer to the head of the spoon at the egg. And this is levers at play, right? So the longer the lever, the further that egg is away from your hand, the more work your hand has to do to keep that egg from falling over. And you can really apply the same exact concept to exercise. So let's compare a barbell upright row for targeting the deltoids or the shoulders to a sideline lateral raise where you're laying on your side, you're lifting your arm out to the side, again, targeting the deltoids. So if I calculated the mechanics of these two exercises, you can get 125 pounds per inch of work to the middle deltoids in a sideline raise when you're holding five pounds. I calculated this using the length of my arm, so your values might be slightly different. If you wanted to get the same amount of work to the middle deltoids in a barbell upright row, you'd have to barbell upright row 81 pounds, again, depending on where you're holding the bar on the length of your arms, et cetera. So basically you can get more work to the muscle by just choosing an exercise that had longer levers or choosing an exercise where the weight was further away from the moving joint. And this is because the moment arm or the lever to the deltoid in an upright row is much shorter than the lever is in a sideline lateral raise. So although it might feel super satisfying to lift, you know, heavy weights in something like an upright row, there's nothing wrong with that. It isn't necessarily more load to the muscle, or it doesn't mean that you're necessarily stronger than the person doing the sideline lateral raise with less weight. It's because the levers are shorter and you've given yourself a mechanical advantage. So don't be fooled that more weight leads to more work. It's more about the mechanics and levers than it is about how much weight you're holding. And if you're confused by that, we talk about this a lot on my Instagram and in the Avalo classes. So you can find some more resources there. Step number two to making your workouts more time efficient and still effective is to fatigue muscles properly using simple exercises. There's a lot of debate about how heavy you should go, how much weight you should lift and how much reps you should do to see the best results. Interestingly, the research is pretty clear that volume doesn't matter as much as people think and how much weight you're holding doesn't matter as much as people think. You just have to get to a certain threshold of stimulus. So you can do low volume, high weight, or high volume, lots of reps and lower weight. As long as you are getting close to that failure point, you can still induce hypertrophy. So getting to that muscle fatigue or getting close to failure is super important. And my recommendation to streamline this is instead of choosing an exercise that does a lot at once, really simplify your movements. You'll often see combination moves on Instagram and I think they look sexier and they, you know, sexy cells, but it's not necessarily what works more. I don't recommend doing these like complicated combination moves if your goal is hypertrophy. And let me tell you why. Combination moves like a squat to an overhead press to a burpee are fun, but they don't put the targeted muscle under enough constant load. If you are trying to grow your shoulders, for example, let's say you do the burpee to a squat to an overhead press back to burpee. So you do the overhead press and then you squat down, you set the weights down, you jump back to a plank, you jump back up, you squat down again, grab the weights, set your hips back for the squat, and then finally press again. So your shoulders really got 
a few seconds with all of that movement in between where they're able to rest and sort of reset. So they're not under continuous load. So this means you either have to do a ton of reps to get close to that failure point to influence muscle growth, or you just never get close to that failure point at all because the shoulders aren't under enough constant load. Either way, you're putting unnecessary wear and tear through your body. So instead choose a simple movement that places more constant load through the targeted tissue, instead of thinking that movements need to be super complex and need to involve your entire body in order to be effective. Okay. And then tip number three for improving the efficiency and effectiveness of your workouts is to implement workout splits. This is something I talk about all the time. And again, in this episode, it might've been one of the first times I introduced this, but we know that muscles need a couple of days or sometimes longer to fully recover. And we can switch each muscle group we're working day by day so that we're keeping the workouts short and effective without overusing our body. When you are only focused on a few muscle groups per workout and you choose exercises that utilize levers to add substantial stimulus to the muscles without overloading your joints, you truly only need about 30 to 45 minutes to get a great workout that will drive results. So this is how you can work out three to five times per week or strength train three to five times per week for shorter periods and still see results. So you do the following things. Number one is you ditch the idea that you have to do super heavy lifts or combination moves to see results. Number two is focus more on using effective levers than how much weight you can push. And again, these are things that we talk about on Instagram a lot or in Evo classes. Number three is to find the right dosage for your body. Fatigue yourself at the end of each set while maybe keeping like three to four reps in reserve. So you're getting close to that failure point in each exercise. And then number four is to implement workout splits so that your muscles have time to heal in between workouts and you aren't overusing your muscles, which is counterproductive. So if you're repeating this process week after week, if you're fueling properly with nutrition, you will begin to see your body change. I have actually worked out for less time than I ever used to. And yet I see better results because I implement this process and I'm consistent. So give it a go and see how you feel. All right. That is episode number nine. Let's get into the next episode. We're going to jump all the way to number 48, how to have a stronger body with less back pain. This is one of the only episodes where I talk about pain because as a physical therapist, I don't want to confuse Evlo and our brand with being rehab or being a fix for your pain because pain is very complex. And I'm going to talk about it here in a second. I want to be clear that my brand is fitness and our goal is to help you drive fitness gains, but without the subsequent joint pain that is prevalent in so many other fitness programs because they're overly intense or overusing your body or selecting exercises that aren't very joint friendly. So that's my little disclaimer. I also want to give this disclaimer that if you're having any acute back pain, like if you really injured yourself and you're having severe pain, hard time moving, I do not recommend working out right now. So make sure that you're seeking professional advice when you need it and being smart about that. But I will say that a lot of low back pain will resolve if you're moving and exercising in the right ways. And a lot of this is going to be subjective, but I'm going to give you kind of some guidelines here. So the first thing to understand is that pain is very complex and that pain is a symptom. We don't need to fix the pain. We need to fix the underlying cause of the pain. The cause of pain is generally 
again, it's complex, but it's generally inflammation or tissue damage due to stress, trauma, overuse, or nutritional deficits. And we're going to break down all of that in this little synopsis. And I'll give you suggestions on how to exercise to build strength with less strain on your back. Again, I'm not promising that your back pain will go away. This is not rehab, but I will say that so many Evo members have noticed significant improvements in how their joints feel just from treating their bodies better in their workouts and loading their muscles rather than overloading their joints. So back pain is complex because your spine is loaded with tons of neurosensitive tissues like ligaments, you know, your spinal cord is there. You've got tons of nerves that are coming out from your spinal cord. You have lots of muscles with the primary goal of protecting that spinal cord, but back pain is not always due to structural damage. So it's not necessarily always a disc or a ligament tear or a muscle tear. Studies have actually shown MRI images of people with back pain who have no structural damage at all. And yet their pain is real. Like this doesn't diminish their pain at all or say that they're making it up, but they don't actually have structural damage. So although back pain often can result from structural damage, like degeneration or disc herniations, that is not always the cause of pain. There are so many components that signal pain and one podcast won't scratch the surface of this topic's complexity, but to simplify it, aside from an acute trauma, like you slip and fall tissue dysfunction and pain can be boiled down to too much stress, either mechanical, chemical, or emotional stress without enough recovery. In order for our body to function well, we have to recover from the stresses in our lives like exercise. We want to build muscle. We want to avoid being too stationary. We want to be metabolically and emotionally healthy. You have to have a balance between your recovery response and your stress response. Pain and tissue dysfunction happen when there's an imbalance between your stress and your restore processes. And this can happen again for several reasons, like I alluded to above. So stress, trauma, overuse, or nutritional deficits or dehydration. So let's go over the first one, stress. Stress is so interesting to me. Stress can cause inflammation in your tissues by signaling chemical changes in your brain and body when it senses a threat. So stress that is balanced with recovery is a good thing. We want the right doses of stress so that our body can adapt and get stronger in lots of different ways. So I think we need to reframe reframe our relationship with stress that it's not necessarily a bad thing. What's really interesting about stress is that stress can manifest similarly in your body with pain or tightness or whatever, whether the stress is emotional, chemical, or mechanical, which is super interesting. And I know that sounds woo woo that emotional stress can cause physical symptoms, but it's really not because emotional stress triggers chemical reactions that cause inflammation in your body. Anytime we have a thought or a feeling, there's just kind of chemical synapses happening in our body that are eliciting certain responses. So that can cause inflammation, can push on nerves and structures in your joints and in your tissues and trigger a pain signal. I used to always get more neck pain when I was stressed out. Like it was clockwork, (laughs) even if I wasn't changing anything in my nutrition or my exercise, but if I was stressed, I would get more neck pain. So it's a real thing. This is one of the reasons why we do breath work and meditation in every single workout, because slowing down your brain and taking a moment to breathe can improve emotional stress, get you to slow down, get you out of that fight or flight and help you keep your joints healthier, both in your workouts and then outside of your workout. So stress 
can absolutely be emotional and therefore physically affect our bodies. Stress can also be mechanical. So this is from something physically happening to your body. So sitting or standing for too long or doing some repetitive movement at work or in your workouts, or from doing exercises that are overloading certain muscle groups and underloading others without enough recovery. So let's talk in particular about exercise. If you're working out every day and you're doing, let's say your routine is like a lot of squats and deadlifts and burpees and lunges and bent over rows and overhead presses, all these things that are loading your spine and your paraspinal muscles and your trunk, which is not bad or wrong, but when that type of programming is done every day without enough rest, it can start to cause issues and inflammation or mechanical stress to your spine. So this is why I really recommend looking at which exercises you're doing day after day and programming accordingly. Anytime you work legs, a lot of times you will be loading your trunk muscles as well as your leg muscles. Not all exercises, but a lot of times when you're working glutes in particular, you'll be loading your spine as well. So this is why you'll see like we work legs, but then we also separate our upper body so that we're not loading the trunk a lot during our upper body work because it is getting load in our, our burn workout and in our legs workout. So I think that programming and understanding how you're loading your spine in certain exercises is really important to limit that mechanical stress and apply the right amounts of mechanical stress. Obviously there's other mechanical stressors that are important to look at. Like again, how long you've been sitting, do you stand a lot? But I do find that when you choose exercises and programming that isn't overstressing your spine, you can tolerate those life things with a lot more ease. Like you can sit on a plane for a long time and not have all this back pain versus like when I was over exercising and way overstressing my spine, sitting on a plane for three hours was like brutal versus now it's no problem. So in summary about stress, small amounts of stress are beneficial for your body because you need the catabolic and the anabolic to keep your body maintained. You need the stress and the restore. Still, many times stress highly outweighs your body's ability to heal the inflammation that you're causing from your stress, and this can tip the scale and cause unwanted symptoms like pain. Okay, so that's stress. Overuse. Overuse is something that I talk about a ton in this podcast. I'm not going to talk about it too much right now. I think it's one of the biggest mistakes I see in exercise programming is just like even if you are doing an upper body day, you're adding lunges and you're adding crunches and you're adding all of these things that are overusing muscles like your glutes and your abs and your low back muscles and not giving it enough rest and that can cause back pain. So overuse is a big reason. The third thing, the third reason for inflammation and thus pain in the spine is trauma. So in this context, trauma means a physical event like a car wreck or a sport injury or a fall. And I won't discuss this in too much detail, but please see a practitioner. If you've had an injury, remember that one part of your body can absolutely affect another. So if you have an injury that happened acutely with a trauma, seeing a practitioner is very important. And then lastly, the fourth element that can affect inflammation and thus back pain is nutritional issues, right? So nutrition is not my scope, but I do know that nutrition Nutrient or hormonal deficiencies can affect all of your body's processes, including your ability to heal and recover. 
But, you know, from what I've learned from all of the nutrition experts that I've interviewed over the years is that so many people, especially women who are exercising and lifting are under eating, especially under eating protein. And this can throw off that stress relax response and throw you more into the stress response and inhibit your body from healing and progressing. And this can cause, you know, inflammation, pain, and ultimately for you to not see the same results. So in summary for this episode, learning how exercise can be a contributor to back pain, mostly because of stress or poor programming or exercise selection and overuse, you can really start to program your workouts more appropriately to feel better. So instead of just you know, you step on a splinter and you rub the splinter and put a bandaid on it to try to make it feel better. Take out the splinter. That's kind of how I feel with exercise, right? Instead of trying to foam roll and stretch your way out of like a workout program that's overusing your body, let's just stop overusing your body. Let's just change up the stimulus. You'll feel better and you're, and you will see better results. All right. So that's episode number 48. The next one is episode number 51. When to mix it up versus keep it the same. In this one, we talk about muscle confusion. I think it's really interesting and plateauing. So plateauing is common if you're a fitness enthusiast and it's not something to panic about at all. I've gone through periods of plateauing and it's kind of just part of the process. And you can almost see plateauing as like maintenance. It's just like, okay, I'm just going through a period where I'm maintaining a little bit and then you'll jump up and then it'll happen again. So it's very common, nothing to panic about. But the first thing people want to do when they start plateauing is mix things up, but is mixing it up actually more effective? Should we be challenging our bodies in different ways all the time? You know, you hear like, we should be confusing our muscles. We should be mixing it up. How much of that do we really want to be doing? If your goal is muscle hypertrophy and strength from your resistance training, which is generally what I recommend, mixing it up is actually not the best thing to do when you hit a plateau at least not mixing it up significantly. Many people will stop getting sore and think that they're plateauing, but you can build muscle in the absence of soreness. Soreness is not a reliable measure of your workout's effectiveness. Many people will stop getting sore in their routine because their nervous system has adapted to certain movements, which is not a bad thing. So many people mix it up because they think they're plateauing, even though they may not be. And since they've mixed it up, they get sore again. And they think that because they're sore, that's what's going to drive further progress. But mixing it up is actually the last thing that I recommend because anytime you switch up your routine, your body has to learn how to coordinate and stabilize these unfamiliar movements. This is a state of motor learning where you aren't as strong and you can't load tissues very significantly. When you do a new activity, you're in a motor learning stage. So you are learning new movements and this oftentimes triggers soreness, but you're not necessarily sore because that new workout was more effective, but more because you're doing movements that your body's unfamiliar with, but loading muscles significantly is crucial for muscle growth. So if you're in that process of starting over and in that motor learning process where you can't load muscles very significantly, and you're just jumping around from program to program and not giving enough time, you're not actually going to be able to load your muscles significantly enough to induce muscle growth. In this episode, I also talk about how muscle confusion is a myth. So if you want to learn more about that, I'm not going to break that down, but that's episode number 51. Muscle confusion is uh, a myth. So let's talk about my next point, which is, is it beneficial to move our bodies in different ways at all? When is it beneficial to mix things up? 
I think that working on mobility and control and coordination is so good for your overall joint health and your brain body health. But my recommendation is to explore different movement patterns in a relatively unloaded environment so you can decrease your risk. So in other words, you're not adding new movements when you are adding a bunch of weight. So you're reducing your risk when you're in that motor learning mode and just trying to stabilize the movement. So the way that we do this and the way that we are constantly incorporating motor learning is through our mobility drills in the beginning and end of class. We also do a low impact cardio burst class each week, which is super fun, but it very much challenges coordination and makes you move in different ways and and challenges your brain. So let's talk about each. For mobility, the idea is to improve your neural map to a certain area of your body or improve your brain body connection. This improves stability. It improves the ability to recruit more of the muscle when you actually load it in your workout because you have a better brain map of that area. And oftentimes, some mobility can reduce pain and tightness again because you just have a better, your brain has a better understanding of how to stabilize and control that area. So we do some challenging mobility drills sometimes. Some that I love are like all fours scapular circles. So you are in quadruped and you're kind of circling your shoulder blade, trying to smooth out and own every millimeter of that movement. I love rib cage circles. So you can do this in seated and circle your rib cage as smooth as possible, right, or right um, on top of your pelvis. You can do figure eights with your feet. You know, you could do figure eights with your head. There's lots, endless ways that you can incorporate mobility to improve your brain body connection. And then additionally, cardio, I think is a great way to really improve your coordination and quote unquote, mix it up again. Not all cardio classes are created equal. We want to still consider the impact through your joints, but Um, if you're an Evelyn member taking that low impact cardio burst class is a really fun way to challenge your coordination. So in summary, should we mix up our workouts? If your goal is muscle hypertrophy or definition, stick to the basics and stick to progressive overload. If your goal is like coordination or having fun, try adding in some different movements in some cardio, maybe a dance cardio or mobility. The best part is if you are an Evlo member, we do both of those things in our routine. We load the muscles using progressive overload and simple ways, but then we add in some fun stuff with our mobility and with our cardio. All right. So there's that episode number 51 about when to mix it up versus when to keep it the same. Episode number 74 is next. This is about exercising in heat. And this was actually one of my favorite episodes because I personally have always loved heated workouts. And I really dug into a systematic review about this. And I think it's really interesting. So I often get asked about exercising in heat and what the pros and cons are. I'll summarize what happens to the neuromuscular system when you exercise in cold versus warmer temperatures, reasons not to exercise in heat and why and when to consider exercising in heat. And lastly, we'll kind of go over some general guidelines. So first I want to say, please check with your doctor before you apply any of this stuff. This is not medical advice. (laughs) So getting that over with. And then I also drew information from a systematic review that I'll link in the show notes for this stuff. The bottom line is that working out in hot versus cold rooms can affect your neuromuscular system in interesting ways and may be advantageous for you to work out in a warmer room 
but it may be disadvantageous to work out in a super hot room or if your workouts are too long. So we want really strong wiring and electrical signals from our brain and our spinal cord to our muscles. In other words, we want that strong motor map. We want strong neuromuscular connection. This allows more fibers or more motor units within the muscle itself to contract, which means we can increase the load to the muscle and therefore increase protein breakdown. After the protein breakdown, we get the recovery, we're eating properly, and this triggers protein synthesis, which is how muscle is built. So in other words, the brain body thing is a real thing and it's really important. You could do the same exact workout in different environments and ultimately see different results because of the difference in this electrical signal. So let's start with talking about why cold is not ideal for strength training. Muscles generally do not perform well in cold. And I think it's, this is pretty well known since most everyone agrees that a warm up is crucial before exercise and it doesn't feel very good to train when your body is cold. But what is really happening to muscles when you load them in colder temperatures? When muscles are cold, there's a co-activation of your muscles that occurs. So this means that both the agonist and the antagonist are contracting at the same time. So for example, your bicep and your tricep contract simultaneously when you're doing a certain exercise. Whereas we want the bicep, let's say we're doing a bicep curl. We want the bicep to contract and we want the tricep to relax. And you've probably felt this when you're cold, you feel like everything is contracted and tight as a mechanism to keep you warm, but we don't want this co-activation necessarily when we're strength training, because it can inhibit the muscle that you're targeting from fully contracting. But another interesting mechanism happens, which when you're exercising in cold, the agonist muscle activity decreases significantly where the antagonist muscle activity increases. And this makes exercising in cold less advantageous. So in a bicep curl, the tricep would contract too much. The antagonist would contract too much, not allowing the bicep adequate work and contraction. This mechanism where the opposing muscle is working harder than the targeted muscle is called the breaking effect and could be a mechanical strategy from your nervous system to prevent cold tissues from injuring. So that's why strength training in cold is probably not the most optimal way to train. But what about strength training in warmer rooms? There's a difference between increasing central temperature and increasing local temperature at the muscle. Increasing local temperature can be advantageous to performance. You're warming up your muscles, whereas increasing central temperature or your internal core temperature can be detrimental to performance. So let's talk about both. An increase in local temperature or muscle temperature is shown to increase muscular performance. In a small study cited in the show notes, eight subjects were exposed to different room temperatures and asked to jump. And the results show that performance increased linearly with those who were in warmer rooms. So they started at 50 degrees Fahrenheit and moved up incrementally all the way up to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And as the temperature of the room increased, performance increased. So they showed that the higher temperatures, 80 degrees Fahrenheit was the highest performance and the 50 degree Fahrenheit room showed the lowest performance. So this begs the question, should we work out in hot rooms? Well, it seems that a warmer room may be advantageous for performance, but there seems to be a ceiling where war- a warmer room may actually inhibit neuromuscular function. This means that you could do the exact same workout, but if your room is too hot, you may not be able to load muscles as effectively. 
This is because when a workout is too long or in a temperature that's too warm, your central temperature or your core temperature increases. Central temperature or core temperature increasing a couple of degrees above baseline is normal with exercise. When your core temperature increases, your body will begin to sweat in an attempt to regulate your core temperature. But when your core temperature increases too much, a few degrees above baseline, performance declines. And neural drive or your ability of your muscles to contract declines as central temperature, as core temperature increases. Neural drive is the electrical activity between the brain and the body that causes muscle contraction. So high temperatures seem to decrease neural drive and contractile activity of a muscle. So working out in a super hot room may not be advantageous for muscular performance and for hypertrophy. At the end of this episode, I also talk about why I don't recommend working out in warmer rooms. I don't recommend working out in warmer rooms to increase flexibility or because you want to burn more calories or expedite weight loss. I get into all of that. And then at the end of the episode, I talk about kind of some general guidelines if you want to start to introduce heat into your routine. So make sure to check that out. That is episode number 74. Okay. Last one. And this is one that I did recently. It's episode number 97 about the minimum amount of exercise I recommend for results. This was one that we got a lot of positive feedback about, and I think that it was a relief for a lot of people to hear and made people feel like, oh gosh, it doesn't have to be so black and white. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. So if you're in a season where you can't commit much to exercise, what is the minimum amount you can do to gain? And what is the minimum amount you can do to maintain muscle? Gaining and maintaining muscle will require slightly different volumes for exercise, and it will also depend on your fitness levels. So I think that it's really important to set realistic expectations and goals for yourself during this time. If you're someone who's, you know, a new mom or you've got an intense job or whatever is going on, you don't have a ton of time to commit to your workouts. Maybe your goal right now is not to build a bunch of muscle mass. You may just try to maintain or maybe very slowly build muscle mass, get stronger and continue to move your body and take care of yourself. But I think that setting the expectation that this is not going to be the fastest track for sure. It's not going to be an overnight fix, but applying the motto of gentle consistency during this time is going to be key for you. And I think that applying this stuff is for sure better than doing nothing. So will it be the best gains? Maybe not, but I think this is really important to know because inevitably we'll all go through seasons of life where we just can't commit to making fitness a huge priority. Now notice how I didn't say that these, this will result in fat loss. And that's because fat loss is primarily the job of nutrition, not exercise. So exercising to build or maintain muscle mass can absolutely indirectly affect fat loss because it helps keep your metabolism and your insulin sensitivity high, because as you cut calories, you lose both fat and muscle, unless you are strength training and loading your muscles and losing lean muscle mass. If you're cutting calories and not strength training can decrease your metabolism, making staying at that energy deficit with food even more difficult. So bottom line, we aren't exercising for fat loss. Leave that to your your nutrition. Evlo's members, make sure to check out the nutrition modules, but focusing on maintaining muscle at the very least while you're making nutrition changes is going to give you so much more success. So strength train and focus on nutrition if fat loss is your goal. All right. So let's talk about what to do when it comes to gaining muscle. 
if you are new to exercise or let's say you've taken off a substantial amount of time, like maybe you're postpartum or, or you've just fallen off for a little while, you will likely experience newbie gains with pretty much any volume, which is great. So this means you can go from no training to some training and you will likely experience some gains, which means that you can kind of ease in with relatively low volumes and low commitment and still see some great gains. So if you're new, the minimum amount of exercise that I recommend that can result in some small gains is one hard set per muscle group per week, one hard set per muscle group per week. So that's one hard set of quads, one hard set of abs, one hard set of glutes, one hard set of shoulders, chest, etc. Now emphasis on the hard set, just using super light weights and just kind of feeling it burn and like, Oh yeah, it's there might not move the needle. Of course, that type of training isn't useless. Moving your body at all is encouraged, even if it's like that type of movement where it's just kind of like a little more gentle or maybe gentle Pilates is all you have the energy for, which listen, it it happens. Please do that. But having the expectation that gentle Pilates may not move the needle much as far as muscle growth. So the hard set is important. So you want to struggle towards the end of that set and really make sure that you're using appropriate resistance. You don't have to use a lot of resistance. You just have to select exercises that are fatiguing that muscle and getting close to that failure point. So one hard set per muscle group per week. If you're new, if you're not new to training, you may need more sets for muscle growth. So studies show that four sets per muscle group per week can result in great gains. Even if you only have time for one to three sets per muscle group per week, you still can see great gains. It just might not be as obvious. It might just be slower gains. But if you're not new to training and you need to take a step back for whatever life season you're going through, maybe you just focus on muscle maintenance and dialing nutrition. Maybe your expectation is that you're not going to build a ton of muscle during this time and that is okay. So just to summarize, the minimum amount of resistance I would recommend is one hard set per muscle group per week. Newbies may see some small gains from this, but if you're trained, you may need more like four, three, four sets per muscle group per week to see gains. That one hard set per week for those of you that are trained, maybe more of a maintenance zone for you. You can lace in some easy cardio. If you have the time and energy, you could shoot for just 10 to 30 minutes of that per day in addition to your strength training. But if you don't have the time and energy, if you're like, okay, it's either going to be strength training or it's going to be cardio choose the strength training because strength training will also benefit your cardiovascular health. And remember if fat loss is your goal, dial your nutrition and make sure that you're eating enough protein while you are strength training and check out the nutrition videos on the membership for more info there. Oh my gosh, that's it. (laughs) That was a lot. This was 19 pages and I feel like I talked really fast. I really hope that you all enjoyed this. Let me know what you thought send me a message on Instagram. Um, I would love to know your thoughts about this type of episode. I think that this is good to do every once in a while, because to be honest, we, I, we just have a lot of content. And I think that even as I was going through this, I was like, Oh, I forgot that I researched that. Like I thought that it was interesting to kind of bring back to the surface. So we'll be back with more episodes, summarizing this stuff. Hope you enjoyed this. We'll see you all next week or maybe even sooner with a bonus episode. Same time, same place. Bye for now.